I do think the basic idea for partnering with these fragile state militaries is, is pretty simple. It's that there's increased state fragility. This fragility affects the United States, particularly given the nature of transnational threats. But especially post 9-11, the U.S. doesn't want to have the military deal with it. Then Secretary of Defense Gates was pretty clear that this was going to be the future. It was going to be about working with partner militaries and fragile states. So when I left to do my doctorate, uh, this idea was, was sort of gnawing at me. If this was going to be the future, probably makes sense for us to look at the past and figure out wh when have we done it well and how. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI. And in this episode, MWI's major Jake Moraldi sits down for a conversation with Dr. Mara Carlin. Dr. Carlin has served in national security roles for five U.S. secretaries of defense and is the author of a book called Building Militaries in Fragile States. In this conversation, she explains how that imperative to build military forces in some pretty unstable countries has become a central part of U.S. strategy. Why does not just our military, but our entire defense enterprise prioritize this undertaking? And perhaps more importantly, why is it so hard? It's a really interesting discussion, one I think our listeners will enjoy, but before we get to it, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is the absolute best way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Jake Moraldi and Mara Carlin. Dr. Carlin, thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk to us. I'm excited to talk about your book. Um, had some good cadet questions today at your speaker events. So, Absolutely. Thanks um, for having me. It is such a treat to be back at West Point. Yeah, we're glad to have you here. Um, so I do want to kind of follow the progression of your book is, as the guideline for this discussion. Um, before we get into that too deeply, can you give me a little bit of, of just your background and kind of how you came to this, this topic? Absolutely. Uh, so I spent a lot of my career in the Pentagon, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy, working on a number of ugly issues around the Middle East, around South Asia. And in particular, I spent a lot of time trying to build militaries in fragile states. So working with the Pakistani military, the Lebanese military, uh, and, and a whole bunch of others. And as I was leaving the Pentagon was really the time that then Secretary of Defense Gates was pretty clear that this was going to be the future. It was going to be about working with partner militaries in fragile states. So when I left to do my doctorate, uh, this idea was, was sort of gnawing at me. If this was going to be the future, probably makes sense for us to look at the past and figure out wh when have we done it well and how. So in that vein, the idea of the U.S. providing military support or military training or military advising um, I'm curious how we got into the business of doing that, right? If it's the future, there is a precedent that we've set doing that through the past hundred years and, and even back beyond there. Mm -hmm. How did the United States get into the business of providing military aid and support? And what was kind of the, the rationale for us doing that? Absolutely. So I particularly look at the post-World War II world. Um, and, and what you see is, is the U.S working with uh, various fragile states around the world to help them actually do what a state is supposed to do, 
right? Hold a monopoly on violence, as Max Weber tells us. So you see this in all sorts of places. And when you fast forward to today, I mean, uh, you know, you can't count on all of your fingers and all of your toes times five how many different countries around the world the U.S. is working with in terms of kind of a, a military uh, assistance relationship. I do think the basic idea for partnering with these fragile state militaries is, is pretty simple. It's that there's increased state fragility. This fragility affects the United States, particularly given the nature of transnational threats in a post 9-11 environment, post 45 and post 9-11. But especially post 9-11, the US doesn't want to have the military deal with it. We don't want to send the military to deal with some sort of big conflagration. Uh, for a whole, whole bunch of reasons, whether it's sensitivity toward casualties, whether it's expenses, whether it's priorities, especially if you, you look at the national defense strategy that Secretary Mattis delivered about a year or so ago at Johns Hopkins SICE, uh, the focus is on competing with and preparing for conflict with China and Russia. That means that you're going to spend uh, ideally less time doing the Iraqs and Afghanistans. You're going to spend less time at this stage trying to trying to um, trying to deal with fragile states. Yeah, I found it interesting in, in the book, the discussion about as much as anything else, the, the dealing with fragile states in this way, providing aid, providing support is sort of an economy of force effort so that we can shift our focus to the big threats, right? A Russia or a China. I think that should be the goal, right? To figure out how to do this in a smart and sustainable way. Because the U.S. priority list has shifted uh, in recent years, and it is no longer, or at least should not be, according to the National Defense Strategy, all about fighting insurgents and fighting terrorists in the Middle East. It really needs to be focusing more and more on threats posed by China and Russia. Yeah. What I found most interesting about that, though, was the, the idea that that we need to have engagement in these fragile states, that there's the potential for, for lack of a better term, sort of a butterfly effect if something were to happen in Pakistan or if something were to happen in pick, you know, any of the hundreds mm -hmm. states that we interact with in a, in a military support relationship, that it's impossible for us to disengage from those places entirely. And if we can't or aren't willing to use our own troops or our own military power to maintain, like you said, the, the mm -hmm. monopoly of violence in those places, um, that we have to do something to do foreign internal defense or some kind of support. Mm -hmm. Particularly um, for the places that fall under U.S. national security interests, right? There are a whole bunch of dysfunctional, fragile states around the world in which the U.S. isn't mucking about. And the U.S., uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that there's fragility there, but it, it doesn't hit U.S. national security interests. But there are, there are places, and we see them, you know, if you look at Syria today, for example, where the fact that this is a really fragile state matters to U.S. national security interests. So given the need, and, and it seems very much like a compelling need to be good at doing this, in your book you identify that we sort of struggle as a, as a nation and as a security mm -hmm. apparatus to understand and, and implement policy in these places to achieve our goals, to, to maintain stability in the places we want to maintain stability. Mm -hmm. Can you sort of explain why, why you think that is? Sure. Uh, you know, one answer may be that we do not have a colonial history. Uh, and so we are often less willing to push ideas onto other countries because we're not used to sort of being an occupying force a la the UK or France. Um, but the, the kind of one of the big arguments that I make in this book is, is actually to be more effective at working with 
fragile state militaries, one needs to rethink what American involvement looks like. Effectively, one needs to be a lot more comfortable mucking around in a military's sensitive issues. Uh, that includes the partner military's mission, how it's organized, key leaders, and, and effectively encouraging or mandating personnel changes when necessary. Inside the family, if you will, uh, kind of among kind of the, uh, the national security apparatus in the US, one needs to be a, a lot more focused on ensuring there's unity of vision, both in the field and in Washington. And it's really important that you have serious, rigorous, meaningful debates on the nature of American military involvement in that conflict. Specifically, at what stage do you want to become a co-combatant? At what stage uh, do you want to focus towards the partner, kind of dealing with the problems and the ugliness themselves? So my, my argument is um, to be more successful, and where I've seen us more successful, we've been willing to try to push those sorts of things. And obviously, how one pushes that can, can vary. I don't mean one should necessarily be sort of blustery and obnoxious. But uh, you know, if you don't have a kind of clarity of mission and organization and leadership, or if you don't have clarity of why we are doing this effort, what we seek, uh, seek for it to achieve, um, you're just not going to succeed. And, and it is, I think, too easy to say things like, well, let's give them a bunch of training. Let's give them a bunch of equipment. Look at the Excel spreadsheets and what's all listed on, on there and just hope that some sort of meaningful change will come from that. But I just I think training and equipping is um, is is insufficient, uh, wildly insufficient. Yeah, it was. I thought it was really interesting in in your book. You talk about a, a successful case study, which is the the Greek Civil War, sort of in the 40s and 50s. We recognize that there is a risk of both Greece and Turkey kind of falling within the the Soviet orbit, mm -hmm. um, and we, you know, execute steps not just to as you as you said the sort of inefficient insufficient uh, manning, equipping, training piece and actually interacted with the larger system of security and governance within Greece. And I'm curious why why no aversion to doing it there and, and why aversion elsewhere? Is there something unique about the Greek case just in your understanding of, of that particular case? Because, you know, in the book you do outline a, a whole bunch of places where we're not willing to engage in those sort of higher order mm -hmm. changes or discussions. Um, so I'm curious as to why Greece was mm -hmm. different. I think a bunch of things line up in Greece. So in some of the other examples I look at, like Lebanon in the early, early 80s, some things line up. So for example, the US is willing to push for a new leader of that military. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of incredible. You have a senior US official who effectively reads through the portfolios of, uh, of a handful of folks who are being considered by the president of Lebanon to serve as the head of the military, then goes and interviews the individual, individual who ends up being chosen, a fellow named General Ibrahim Tanous. And Tanous at this stage is completely beaten and battered from fighting the Civil War. And after a few minutes of speaking with this American official, effectively the American official says, wow, you really got to run this military. Uh, the, the, um, the next day, as General Tanous is driving into work, he hears announced on the radio that the president, whom he does not know at all, has chosen him to be in charge of that military. So you, ha you see um, some elements of it in some of the other examples I look at, but in Greece you see it all. And, and why, I'm not exactly sure. I'm, uh, you know, one answer could be it's just after World War II. The U.S. is kind of uh, trying to feel out its new global mm -hmm. role. 
Um, and uh, one may be just how desperate and pathetic Greece is. My favorite quote about Greece from this period of time comes from Dean Acheson. He says, Greece was in the position of a semi-conscious patient on the critical list whose relatives and physicians have been discussing whether his life could be saved. So Greece is not looking good. Our allies, the Brits, have tried to help Greece and frankly just kind of uh, failed miserably. And the, the U.S. is focused on it. It cares about it. Obviously, there's this much broader chapeau of, uh, of the fight against communism that plays into it. You see a uh, capable U.S. military official that gets, gets put in, uh, Lieutenant General James Van Fleet, who's supposed to run the effort. And you, just, you have a number of factors that uh, enable uh, the U.S. to really be comfortable mucking around in, in sensitive Greek affairs. And I think you see that payoff pretty meaningfully. The other one that stuck out to me that you articulated as a challenge was the the third party issue mm-hmm. um, that we, when interacting in these fragile states, need to understand and and incorporate into our assessment of these places and our interaction with these places some of the third the other third parties that are involved. Um, and my question to that is, we, you know, mucking about as you say in these countries are sort of a third party. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that begs the question. Or does it imply that other countries who are third parties are better at doing this sort of thing than than we are? I don't know if it's that they're better. Uh, what I do want to call attention to is that this is not just a bilateral conversation. Mm-hmm. So that there are going to be other countries that may have an interest in actually that partner military remaining fragile uh, for a, a whole bunch of reasons. They may want they may be intent on exploiting that country's weakness and have a vested interest in opposing efforts to try to strengthen that. Uh, and so it, is, it can be really easy to see this as a bilateral conversation. And I want to ensure we sort of shoot our aperture as wide as possible to recognize, all right, what, what do other countries think about this? What are they doing to, say, foment the insurgency or, or what have you? And what are we willing to do? You know, are we willing to try to give assistance in border security, let's say? Are we willing to go to the United Nations to try to um, leverage international pressure on, on those sorts of countries? Are we willing to attack the third parties ourselves, for example? What, do, what are we willing to do? Um, and, and, and frankly, maybe that we're not willing to do anything. We may have a higher priorities vis-a-vis that third party. That's all well and good. Let's just recognize that they're, they're, they're kind of part of the landscape, uh, often in a really meaningful way. I mean, one of my big takeaways, I think, from doing this research is that at the, end of the way, at the end of the day, it's really hard to find examples where it is just an internal security problem. Yeah, and I imagine, right, our, our understanding of how any insurgency works or any security problem within a state's boundaries, that tends to be one of the dynamics, right? There's some external either safe haven or support or there's, there's always an external Yeah, element. you see that, you see that uh, time and time again. And, you know, some are a whole lot more complicated than others. So I, I spent some time looking at Lebanon in the early 80s where you, I mean, the number of groups, militias, countries, you name it, that are involved is just can be, can be really mind boggling. Um, but you have the perception, at least, as articulated by Syrian Vice President to then Secretary of State Schultz, Look, the United States is short of breath. You can always wait them out. And, and if that is a belief, it means that that third party, and, and in the case of Lebanon, you've got like third party, fourth party, fifth party, mm-hmm. et cetera, um, that, that they think their efforts to uh, ensure the, the country is destabilized and, uh, and continues to be fragile, that they think it's only a kind of matter of time because we'll, we'll kind of head out. So 
there is an air around, my understanding is I don't exist in D.C., but an air around sort of the foreign policy circles, or at least the administration within D.C., looking at our engagement with the wider world differently, that there's a, a discussion about how we engage in some of these relationships and in certain places. Um, and I'm curious, based on the potential change in that engagement or, or the worldview of the administration that currently resides in Washington, how that changes the sort of conceptual idea of military support and how it ends up becoming practice out in the world, out in these countries that we're trying to support. So I think what I'm hearing from you is a question focused on U.S. internationalism. Yeah. The extent to which Amer it is good for America to be the leader of the order that has existed in, in post-World War II. And I'll, um, here's my thinking on it, which is pretty strong. And I'll use the example I use with the cadets, which focuses on the Green Bay Packers because I'm from Wisconsin. So here's how I think about the post-World War II order. America is the Green Bay Packers. Those are the good guys, by the way. <laughs> Chicago Bears can be kind of anyone we don't like. So what is amazing about the post-World War II order is not only are we the Packers, we have a bunch of other teams that are playing on the field on our side, and we're the referee. That is a really good situation, right? It means that we can make calls that are, in some ways, altruistic, but let's be honest, work in particular to facilitate our interests. And frankly, if we're not the referee, if you kind of play this, this metaphor out a little bit more, uh, then, then who is? And, and it seems to me it is a good thing that I can have the Packers playing with three other teams against the Bears mm -hmm. and calling the shots. So I guess my follow-up question to that then would be, if the decision is made that we are not necessarily interested in calling the shots, that that's mm -hmm. not the role that we want to fulfill. How do you foresee, and, and I, I don't want to do the crystal ball thing, but how do you foresee that changing the way we enact military support? Is it mm. a wholesale change? Is it, do we abandon those efforts? Or is that something that we say, hey, we, there's no reason for us to be there. This is not a, mm -hmm. a compelling national security interest. Let's pull all those resources back to yep. do other things with them. Um, so it, it, we should try not to see it as too binary, right? At the, at the end of the day, it is pretty rare, I think, that any sort of national security challenge is entirely black or white. If, if they were, they would be a whole lot easier to deal with, obviously. Um, I had a piece in the latest issue of Foreign Affairs that was talking about U.S. involvement in the Middle East, which is the region that I, I've spent um, much of my career on. And the argument that I make with my extraordinary co-author, Tamara Wittes, is uh, effectively the Middle East is purgatory. And it is ugly, it is getting uglier, and the opportunity cost of the U.S. being enmeshed in it is growing higher and higher because of the challenges that we see from China and Russia in, in a whole bunch of areas. And so we still need to have involvement in the Middle East. It should probably be less military involvement, not sh probably, it, sh it should be less military involvement and probably lean more on other parts of kind of the U.S. toolbox, if you will. Um, but there, there is an opportunity cost, and these are this is a really dynamic environment at this mo at this moment in time. I think that translates into a whole bunch of different pieces of how the U.S. engages with that region, and that then is related to this issue of military assistance. You know, you have this really interesting issue 
where a lot of the countries' militaries that the U.S. has worked with in the Middle East were never expected to actually ever do anything, right? It was never expected that the Emirati military would become such an active force, or the Saudi military, for example. And I, I think you know what we've seen, particularly in the case of the, the Saudis in Yemen, is that that's been pretty problematic, to put it lightly. Indeed, there's been some moral hazard there uh, for the United States. So, uh, you know, I guess what I would say is engaging with these countries' militaries, really, really important. Uh, that said, they're going to probably be lower on the priority list merely because other regions have risen higher on that list. Um, so I always try and wind these discussions up because we are here at West Point, and I know you already talked to the cadets, but I'd be curious because we do have cadet listeners, what, what this topic, what you talk about in your book and, and what your research discusses, how that influences our, our cadets and our junior leaders. What way, how should they take this and, and how can they use this information to prepare themselves better mm -hmm. or, or better understand the environment that they're gonna go out into once they leave this place? Absolutely, well, I mean, look, the Army has recognized the importance of this issue and the importance of trying to figure out how to sustainably work with partner militaries, hence the creation of the Security Force Assistance Brigades or, or the SFEBs. So I would say for the cadets that are going to end up spending some time in an SFAB or working with a partner military, I'd say think hard about your assessment of what's going on with that military. Think hard about why you're working with that military and what you hope to achieve. Uh, be willing to push them and recognize that this is not just a bilateral conversation. Um, I think, uh, you know, for the other cadets who maybe will never touch this issue of partner militaries, I think there's a, a broader lesson here, which is, be willing to step back and assess what you've been doing and the extent to which it's actually succeeding. You know, Churchill has this great quote where he says, however beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally assess the results. And uh, I can only speak from my own experience, but having spent a lot of time working on this issue as a practitioner in the Pentagon and then stepping back from it and getting deep into the research and thinking hard on it, uh, I, I found that actually my views on it substantially changed. And I was able to look back and say, hey, I should have done X, I shouldn't have done Y, et cetera. And I, I think that's just generally a really healthy thing for kind of any, any future thinker to do. Awesome. Well, Dr. Carlin, thank you for sitting down and talking to us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you could take just a second and leave a rating or give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great way you can help us reach new listeners interested in the types of topics that we feature on the podcast. Thanks again.